0: Or even the quality of an older person's healthcare. I'm your host, Dr. Leslie Kernison. I'm a practicing geriatrician, so that means I'm a medical doctor specialized in geriatrics, which is the art and science of modifying healthcare so that it works better for older people and for their families. In today's episode, I'm delighted to be bringing back Carol Levine, who is the longtime director of the Families and Healthcare Project at the United Hospital Fund of New York. She is a nationally recognized expert on family caregiving and is the author of Planning for Long-Term Care for Dummies, which was a collaboration with AARP. She's also worked with AARP and others on countless projects related to the role that family caregivers play in supporting aging adults. Today, we'll be talking about some of her current projects with a special focus on how hospital discharges and other major medical events affect family caregivers and on how families might negotiate caregiving expectations. Carol, welcome back to the show. Thank you, Leslie, I'm excited to be talking to you again. So you and I have talked about this before, and I think it also came up in the previous episode that we did, and I'll link to that episode in the show notes, but people often don't think of themselves as family caregivers, even though they might be doing quite a lot to help somebody else. So how do you define what a family caregiver is? Who is a family caregiver? And then, why does it matter from the perspective of the healthcare system and from a sort of um, the perspective of the work that we do?
1: Oh, this is an eternal question. Um, what do we call these people who do all this work, and for the majority, do not get paid for it? Um, a family caregiver, in my experience, and in I think generally accepted in the field, is a person who may be a a blood relative or relative by marriage or commitment or friend who helps an older person or person with a chronic illness manage their care and their uh, daily life over a period of time. So it's not somebody... Who stops by after, um, you know, a, um, a small accident where you you're slightly injured but not really? It's a long-term uh, project, and so I think people have a hard time. Because the care understanding it, because the word caregiver suggests to many people, family members themselves as well as uh, the persons they're caring for, uh, that it that only professionals can be caregivers. Mm-hmm. Um, it, it's a problem with it within the field. I know a lot of people prefer the term care partner which works for some people, doesn't work for others in the UK and and other countries around the world. They use the word carer, um, but nice word, but it's not part of our vocabulary and also caretaker. But for now, we're stuck with family caregiver. Right.
0: So, yeah, I, I agree. People often um, use the word caregiver. And then I realize they're talking about people like me, sort of health professionals. So I personally prefer to use the word, you know, Clinician or a health provider or health professional, just because it, it helps me be clear on sort of uh, who's uh, who's in what role. Now, why do family caregivers matter so much from the perspective of health care?
1: Well, they matter because they provide the bulk of the long term care and chronic care um, in their own home or in the person's home. Uh, the the health care system simply could not survive without the kinds of tasks performed by ordinary family members, not trained um, as you were or as nurses or nurse practitioners are, but who take on this uh, very challenging role. So it's become a kind of expectation that the family member will do all these things, whether they're willing and able or not, creates a real problem. Right. Yeah. And one of the things that I see a lot and I know you do also, and
0: actually you've you've written some very important reports on this, but but I see family members or other you know people in a person's care circle take on a lot of the work that um, that we essentially ask patients to do for themselves when it comes to their their medical care, whether that's just, you know, coming into the doctor's office or going to get the medication or tracking symptoms but usually if somebody has health issues there's a certain amount of, of, uh, of work that they need to do for themselves and often people are having difficulty doing it and so it's family members or others around them who start to step up to help
1: some of those those things happen Absolutely, I'm um, I'm old enough so that my primary care doctor is a geriatrician, and I I believe me when I go to the office, I'm the only person going alone because everybody comes with somebody else, um, and that's important. Um, maybe at some point I'll take somebody with me, but um, it, it's not. It's for security, but it's also for reinforcement of what the clinician recommends, uh, Finds because it's a stressful time. Even a, an ordinary doctor visit can be very stressful. So it's really important to have somebody with you who can ask the questions that maybe you don't think of when you're an older person or you don't want to really want to ask. Um, so the. Uh, Caregivers provide a lot of very direct care, but they also provide that background security that I think many people with chronic illnesses and who are aging need.
0: Yes, yes. Well, some experts have even said that, you know, almost everybody should sort of go with a companion who can uh, just be an extra set of ears and note taker and and help you remember afterwards what happened and what did the... uh, you know, the doctor or health provider say, because in many encounters, it's not put into writing, right? That's right. You know, That's just right. people are told lots of stuff. And then, you know, maybe a few things are jotted down, or they're given a prescription. Or now they have these computer generated post visit summaries, which as far as I can tell, are usually useless.
1: Yeah, and and you don't even get the prescription, it gets uh, emailed or e something to the pharmacy. Right. Um, And, and I want to just want to say that, Um, this kind of lapse of of failing to get all the information at the doctor visit, or certainly in an emergency department or a hospital, it has nothing to do with how smart you are, how well educated you are, anything like that. Although obviously some good literacy is important, but um, I've talked to so many people, many of them healthcare professionals themselves who say, you know, when I was there with my mother or my father, I, I could I can't remember what they said I was just too stressed. So it's a very very common and, and experience and you just should recognize it and then you're not so torn up about it. Why couldn't I remember what the doctor said? You know, I must be losing my mind. Um I've heard this so many times. Right. Yeah.
0: So now speaking of stressful events and moments when it's often very important for family caregivers to step up, or at least we hope they will, or ask them to, you've done a lot of work, um, especially recently, related to what happens to families and family caregivers after a hospitalization. Yes. And as everybody knows, uh, hospitalizations usually mean that somebody was quite sick. Sometimes they are planned for surgeries, but often at the end of a hospitalization, an older person is not entirely well even if it was a planned surgery like a joint replacement, they often are having pain and need assistance. So uh, tell us a little bit about the work that you've been doing on this subject.
1: Well, at the United Hospital Fund, focusing on transitions has been our our main theme for mm, a little over 20 years now. But more recently, I've been involved in uh, project Achieve, and I won't even begin to tell you what that acronym stands for because I can't remember. Um, that is a, pro- a national project funded by PCORI, which is the Patient-Centered Outcomes Research Initiative or Institute, a, a federal agency, um, to look at what really matters to patients and their family caregivers during transitions from hospital to home, largely from hospital to home, and it's involved uh, a number of different healthcare systems and hospitals and other other providers across the country. Um, and uh, my role is as a co-researcher with a great. A lot of others, and I'm co-chair of the stakeholder advisory group, which is made up of patients and caregivers, and also people who work in healthcare, age, uh, non-profit agencies, disease groups, or other other groups, advocacy groups, to really make sure that the questions that are asked and the the, the products that are developed actually represent. The patient and caregiver experience. So it's a very, um, it's a very challenging um, and but interesting um, experience. Right, and I think as part of this work, you've done
0: some focus groups related to the experience of being discharged from the hospital, or the term you used a little while ago was, you know, the transition. Yes. In care, which is a a term we often use in the business to refer to moving from one location of care to another. So it could be from hospital to home or hospital to a rehabilitation facility for short term rehabilitation, or it could be from rehab back to home. And um, and I'm going to put a link to the show notes, but I want to tell the audience that that your organization created a really wonderful resource center with lots of practical resources for older adults and families and patients called NextStepInCare.org. Thank but, you. But um, yes, one of my favorites. <laughs> but uh, but you've been doing some focus groups around this experience
1: of of being discharged, and what have you? What have you learned? Well, I was not one of the people who did actually did the focus groups. They were done by um, some of the other groups in different parts of the country. But I have been involved in. Um, um, analyzing the the findings. And Suzanne Mitchell, who is a, a physician at Boston Medical Center, is the key uh, researcher who uh, led the analysis of the focus groups. And um, Suzanne, the, the results will be published probably next month. But I can tell you what she found and of the or of many things that interested me and that we can talk about one of the to some of the researchers surprising uh, but not to me was that the patients and the family caregivers expressed very different ideas about help at home. The patients didn't want it. They don't need it. I'm fine as long as I get out of here, meaning the hospital. And the family caregivers saying, oh, I don't know if I can handle this. I need some help. Um, you know, so... It was um really startling, and we're hoping to do some secondary analysis of that data. But one of the key findings and and other findings that um that was across all all sets of of uh, groups, whether they were urban, rural, whatever the disease was, and consistent across patients and family caregivers, as Suzanne puts it, it's that patients and caregivers want to feel cared for and cared about. Mm -hmm. And that seems to me to be, you know, that sums it up. That's what we're looking for, to feel that you're getting the right care. The person who's caring for you knows what they're doing. They're, They're on top of it. They're there. They're paying attention to you and that you are important as a person, that you're cared about. Um, if we could just get that message across, I think that would be really, really important. The third thing, and I, I think that that's enough of what I will say about it, is that, and this was a, some, I knew it, but it was very clear to me that when you talk to hospital staff, transition ends when the person goes out the door they're gone you know we'll send some we'll call you in a few days to see how you're doing and don't come back too soon um (laughs) but for the patient and the family caregiver the transition it's just beginning the transition is to a new set of medications a, a slower recovery perhaps than you would want it can last weeks and it could last months. So preparing for that longer term transition is, I think, probably going to be one of the key findings that the transition is not just an immediate get you home safely. It's a preparing for a longer term readjustment to Uh, to whatever life is going to be like after the hospitalization. So I think those are things that that we don't often think about. Oh, I was just so anxious to get out of the hospital. Everything will be fine. But unless you really got the systems in place and know what to anticipate, know who to call, know what might happen, um, it can be very, very, very difficult.
0: Right, yeah. Well, I I find that that often... um older adults and families are, you know, in a way they seem almost blindsided by what comes up at the time of discharge, that the, the older person is kind of surprised that they're going to need help and that families are often kind of surprised that, that often the hospital staff or others are, are expecting them to help. And as you know, there's been this this push to shorten time in the hospital uh, these past several years, you know, which is good in some ways, but means that people are often uh, discharged being less well and less able and less recovered than they may have been 10, 20 or 30 years before. And so right. I feel like everybody's kind of surprised and not prepared. And then you you also alluded to something that also resonates with me, that the, the older person is often saying, no, 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 I, I don't want, you know, these post-hospital services to help uh, me out, I'll be fine. And that families are often a little bit concerned and wanting more help and that there seems to be, you know, a little bit of of tension there that uh, hasn't been resolved, I guess, in part because the sort of question of who's going to do what, you know, what are the needs and who is going to help meet them hasn't really been clearly discussed. So, Tell us, you know, a little bit about what what you've learned about the, the experience for older adults and families in sorting this out. Well, I think
1: that the older adults have a couple of different competing thoughts or interests. One, and I, this is probably the more dominant one, I don't want to, if I say I need help, that'll mean that I'm starting on the the decline, the road to the nursing home, the road to death. I mean, basically that's, you know, that's the fear. It may not be mm-hmm. spoken, but it's there. Um, at the same time, uh, Older adults may feel they don't want to be a quote burden to their families. Oh, I know you have children, and I know you have a job, and I don't want to be a burden to you. Rather than understanding that it's more of a burden if you fall and there's nobody there to help you. Right. And I get a call in my office, and you're in the emergency department. That's a burden. Um, Coming, making sure that somebody's with you when until you really are able to manage on your own, that's not so bad. So there's a kind of a disconnect between um, feeling feeling the need to be protective as well as the need to protect yourself, which the person does. And I can understand that. Um, And there's no you know, often these things happen so fast in the hospital. There's no time to really have a good thorough discussion and and, and explore it and, you know, talk about other kinds of things. It's, you got to make a decision, do you want home care or not? And if you do, we've got to find an agency that'll come take on your case. So it I'm being a little harsh, but not too much. Um, and. We we did hold a roundtable here, um, oh about a year ago now, and published a report on the rather surprising statistics about the percentage of patients who are eligible for home care, which which is you know that's another problem. Are you even eligible for for Medicare? Well, well just to clarify,
0: we're we're talking about home health care,
1: which exactly. is the
0: the package of uh, quote unquote skilled healthcare services that people can get at home, either if they've been had an eligible hospitalization, and that's where sometimes there's some confusion. And we just recently talked with Howard Gleckman, who was saying how that sort of shift to observation uh, right. admissions right. instead of real ones means that people may not be eligible right. for those services, right. but you can get them after uh, certain types of hospitalizations, or if you're homebound and they include things like nurses, physical therapy, occupational therapy, speech therapy, and that that's different from sort of having a paid home aid to. Right. You
1: may also be eligible for an aid um, if you're, but the, but the key to unlocking the door is the need for skilled care. Right. And that could be nursing or PT. Yeah. Um,
0: so you were saying in your roundtable when the statistic, yeah. We
1: heard whatever uh, research is out there and um, 28 or 29% in in one study, um, 5% of patients eligible for home health care refused it. Now, they didn't ask the the caregivers, would you have wanted this? We don't know if the caregivers were actually part of the um, discussion. Um, Maybe not. You know, the nurse may have said, I can refer you to home, you're eligible for home health care. I don't, patient says, I don't need it. That's and the wife is not there. Okay. So um, there is an end. Those patients who refused were more likely to be readmitted within 30 days. So that was their outcomes were not as good. Um, and whether or not you believe in the 30 day readmission penalty as a valid measure, um certainly um, nobody wants to go back to the hospital right after you've been discharged. So um, it's a real issue that I think needs a lot more um, understanding, more study, and a lot more ideas for the staff to negotiate this difference so that you're not, so it's not like, well you're the patient, patient autonomy wins. You don't want it. You don't have to have it. Or on the other hand, you know, saying, well, he's going to, he's going to regret this. So I'm going to order it anyway. Um, Something about um, being cognizant of the emotional significance of this choice and what it means, what it's going to mean on a daily basis. And it isn't going to be 24 hour care. I mean, that's really pretty clear. So, um, it's I think we, we, we need more guidance for staff on how to how to negotiate this with families and, and patients and a lot more understanding perhaps on the part of both that um, the other person has needs and interests as well, and it doesn't. Uh, one doesn't automatically trump the. I That's a terrible word to use here, but one doesn't automatically uh, invalidate the other person's perspective. Right. And some some social workers and nurses do it very well. Others really don't.
0: Yeah. Well, I mean, it, it sounds to me that part of what you're you're getting at is that. Uh, somebody who's leaving the hospital is, you know, usually embedded in a certain kind of care and family network Mm -hmm. and will often need assistance. And as that plan for, you know, a safe and appropriate discharge is being made, it's important to consider the patient and their support network. Right. And think about, you know, what the relationship is between them and the needs of, of both. And I mean, I think it sounds like a stretch, but I feel like in an ideal world, as we're discharging, we'd be prepared to support patients and their families in having this conversation about what the possibilities are and what they might mean and sort of finding a way to help everybody get their needs met and right. cared for. But we're um, not only are we not currently equipped to do that, but it sounds like often as health providers, we're a bit oblivious to the fact that they might have different needs and priorities and that they often haven't uh, discussed this
1: i I experienced this myself with my late husband's yes. care
0: and and just to fill in the audience uh I mean you talked about it more in in episode fifteen the first time you were on but you you were deeply involved in your husband's care for for years i think almost twenty years right seventeen years yes after and he, he was, was uh injured
1: in a car accident right and he was totally disabled and um and it was sort of um the expectation was twofold. One, that I would quit my job and be there in, this was in the rehab center with him every day, even though I was there every afternoon and every and evening and then all weekends, um, that somehow the idea that I continued to work, like, who's going to pay the bills? You know, <laughs> Did nobody seemed to want to know that. Or even worse to me was the Expectation that I would divorce him and just you know if I didn't want to if I didn't want to do this un uh, unceasing labor for the rest of my life or his life I was a bad wife and um, I should just you know leave him which I thought was really offensive oh, yeah that was that was nasty um, but you know doesn't have to be that extreme. There is there is now a much more, I, common I don't know how common but a move to have not just an assessment of the patient but an assessment of the family caregiver. Um, can they actually do the kinds of things you're asking them to do? Can they? Uh, do they have health problems of their own? Do they? Are they? Are they in this? Uh, in the hospital only for a couple of weeks, and they actually live across the country or somewhere where it's not uh, feasible for them to provide care. Uh, so an assessment of what the the um, caregiver can legitimately provide at least gives the staff some idea of where the big gaps are going to be. Uh, one of the, um, you mentioned Next Step in Care, and one of the um, tools that I think is very useful. It's called, What Do I Need as a Family Caregiver? And it's a one-sheet thing, and you, it lists the common things that you might have to do after the hospital discharge, and you can answer, I already do this, I not a problem, or I could do this if somebody really showed me how to do it, or I can't do this at all for whatever reason. And that gives the caregiver a chance to express themselves um, what they're worried about. And the last part of it is, what are, you, what are you really worried about? And what we found as it was tested in hospitals is that caregivers have a range of worries, and some of them are... Um, is my mother going to die? You know, they're very worried, things like that. Or can I get home in time to pick up my kid from daycare? Or, you know, existential spiritual things like, why has God done this to us? You know, so it's important as a way to acknowledge that caregiver as an individual, not just as a as a, an adjunct, as a service to the patient. And that's a hard cultural change, I think. Right.
0: Yeah. Now, uh, as you know, family caregivers often find themselves feeling responsible for much more than they feel comfortable doing. That's You've also done work sort of showing that family members are often doing quite complicated medical and nursing tasks, really, as part of the the healthcare follow-up, things that you could not expect a paid aide to do usually because it would require, you know, licensing and training if you were doing it for, for pay as a professional. Or it just might be more, you know, more time and supervision than maybe they felt comfortable. If you have a job and, you know, children or other things, uh, you you may feel like it's a stretch to, to have to provide uh, an older relative with as much assistance um, in the weeks after discharge as it seems that they they might need. So do you have any suggestions on how um, families can, can sort of avoid feeling, feeling trapped this way? Is there a better way to go about sort of um, negotiating
1: both with the right. professionals and with one's family member? Right. Oh, I just want to mention um, that the study you referred to, um, it's the short title is Home Alone because these caregivers in the survey, National Survey, were home alone without any help, um, was published in 2012 and uh, showed that nearly half of all caregivers uh, were doing something that we called a medical nursing task. The most common was medication management, of course, but there were also things like wound care uh, mobility problems, using a wheelchair walker, those things. And interestingly, one of the high ones uh, was uh, managing special diets, which uh, was very difficult for a lot of people. And we are planning at the moment using, with AARP um, to um, do a repeat of this survey in 2018, 2018 uh, to see what What's changed, if anything? And we've learned some things that we want to ask about, as well as cutting out some things that we didn't feel were so useful. So at some point, Leslie, we'll come back and talk about that. Yes, definitely. Uh, But I think the first step, and that's the hard one, is not to feel guilty and not to feel that you ought to be able to do everything because no one can do that. And to be able to set limits and set boundaries. I mean, this is what we tell our kids, you know, set limits on what I set limits, you set limits, there are things that you can do, there's things that you can't do. And they may not make total sense to anybody else, but those are our those are our boundaries. And I think those are the things that caregivers have to feel that they are They are free to say. That may not solve the problem, but at least it gets it out into the open instead of just saying, okay, okay, all right, I'll do that. And then realizing um, what you knew all along, there's no way you can do all of that. And you're going to need some kind of help whether it's from other members of the family or whether it's from paid help coming in or whether it's um, other kinds of services that could be transportation or meals or uh, any any number of other kinds of things or a support group or a chat line. Um, I think it's it's kind of knowing yourself and being feeling confident that you you have a right to say these things and that somebody has has an obligation to help you work it work through and it's um it's it's easier for me to say and i know because i tried it it's not so easy to do right but it is the first step otherwise otherwise you will simply find yourself being uh totally overwhelmed and get sick and then that's uh that that's the bad way of getting out of caregiving is to become so sick that you can no longer do it Um, it happens to a lot of people. Unfortunately. Yeah.
0: yeah. Well, I I think it's wonderful that you said this and really important because some, um, some people have never had anyone tell them don't feel guilty, set, you know, figure out what your reasonable limits and boundaries are and, and stick to them. Um, But even once people have heard that they often have a lot of difficulty figuring out just how to do that and do you have any thoughts let's say specifically for this sort of situation with the hospital discharge you know which I think is, is slightly different from people who are in a right a longer term you know almost indefinite seeming care right. arrangement where it's become clear that somebody you know is going to need help indefinitely any thoughts for for how they can do it at
1: that around the hospital discharge I think you have to find a Person who will listen to you, and that may not be the first person who you talk to. But um, if you're not satisfied with the response, if you get a kind of dismissive response, then ask ask for someone else to speak to. If it if I'm just making this up, if it's a nurse who gives you this kind of well, of course you can do it. You're the you're the daughter, or you're the son. Then say, I really need to speak to a social worker, or is there a psychologist on staff that I can talk to? Or let me talk to the case manager to see what kinds of services we could we're eligible for to put in place. Look for solutions that are realistic. Not for, not you're not trying to get out of the whole job. At least I'm assuming you're not. You're trying to make the job manageable both for you and the person so that there's no there's no benefit to a person who's ill of having someone who doesn't know what they're doing taking care of them Uh, so i i think it's focusing on realistic solutions and not on how you feel not on not on anything that you know expresses a kind of um oh my my mother was never nice to me it's not that it's what what are we doing in this particular situation are we how do we arrange something that works for all of us and a kind of pragmatic approach mm-hmm. again easier said than done but Um, If you approach it that way as break it down into the what what can I do, what can't I do and how am I going to get help for what I can't do? It makes it a lot more manageable.
0: Right. Right. And it sounds like part of that is, you know, at the beginning, starting off by asking for clarity about what needs to be done. Yes, which exactly. uh, I think, you know, it used to be overlooked a fair bit, but now there's been um, recently the passage in many states of the CARE Act, Caregiver Advise, Record, Enable, where several states are saying that hospitals have to do more work to to identify family caregivers and do a better job of communicating what will need to be done. Because it's, it's only if you really understand uh, what needs to be done that then you can... Um, well, I would think that that makes it easier to then start looking into options for meeting those needs, whether it's learning more about home health or being able to go back to your siblings and say, "It looks like Dad will need help with this probably for this much time. How could uh, how, how we could we work it out?" It
1: out? Yeah, yeah. Um, well, I've I've been um, uh, you know the the Care Act is an ARP uh, promoted legislation in the states. Each state has its own version of the law, the states that have passed it. And it it came directly out of our Home Alone study, uh, which showed oh, that wonderful. caregivers weren't getting weren't getting the kind of uh, instruction that they needed to do these tasks. Um, it's a uh, Right now in 39 states and territories, uh, including District of Columbia, California is certainly one of them, one of the states. And we here, uh, the United Hospital Fund did a toolkit for hospitals in New York State, as well as a uh, patient and caregiver Guide a short one-page um, uh, guide for them to show what this law is about and what it's likely to mean to you. Um, it has had, I think, a very powerful impact in the sense of um, re- help having healthcare providers having to having to make them recognize that the family caregiver is an important person. In- Patient's care, and they have to find out from the patient who that person might be, and record it in the electronic health record. Now, having said that, um, I went to a Care Act summit last November, and there are still a lot of problems in implementation. And part of it is that the electronic health care record doesn't recognize that there's something called a family caregiver. Right, that field does not exist, and there's um, there's still you know. Again, patients don't want to name anybody. Uh, They I don't think they're going to need somebody or they for whatever reason. Um, The training, the instruction um, is variable and often is is not hands-on. It's a demonstration, which isn't quite as good as having to do it yourself and be supervised, but it's there. It's supposedly um, happening. So I think it's a law that is being um, tried out and experimented with, and we'll, we'll begin to see whether this is, makes a difference. But I think um, my colleagues at ARP would also agree that um it's it's only a first step it's getting you home with the basic information about what you may need you still may need follow up instruction you still may need consultation with a healthcare professional so it doesn't it it's not intended to and it doesn't um, remove that necessity of other professionals being involved once you get home. But it does at least help the staff prepare you for that transition home.
0: Right. So it sounds like it's a it's a promising first step. Yes. How can people find out if their state has a CARE Act?
1: Well, uh, there are a couple of ways. There is a map that uh, ARP has prepared. And okay. I think if you Google Care Act Care Act map 2017. You will see a lot of states have it 39. Uh, The ones that don't, interestingly, seem to be um, uh, in the south, and a few in the like Wyoming and there's a big push right now in Iowa. Um, the other way to find out is to Google your st- state's Department of Health and at, look for CARE Act mm-hmm. and that will have some um, uh, information about the state. They're they're very similar, but different enough that you really need to look at your state's law to make sure that it, it you understand it. Um, and uh, I found that New York's is pretty basic, but I did a webinar in Illinois and they had some things that weren't in New York's. So it's important to look at your own state's CARE Act legislation.
0: Mm-hmm. Great. And um, now you mentioned uh, just a little while ago that, you know, one challenge is that sometimes older people in the hospital don't want to name a caregiver. And we've mm-hmm. kind of touched on this a few times in this conversation, how uh, there's often, you know, a, a, a tension or difference of opinion between a, uh, a person and then their, their, their family or, or other, the rest of their support network on what needs to be done, who should do it, how it should happen. So do you have any suggestions for the audience on how to sort of negotiate that with an older parent or, or someone else who, when it seems like you're being asked to, to step up, especially when they're refusing services that you are, or not inclined to accept services that you think would be helpful. Cause I, I hear that a lot from people that, you know, my parent is so stubborn and keeps saying no and only wants
1: me to help him. Right. Um, I think that's the most um, difficult things to do because it, it challenges the very basis of your relationship, um, parent to child. And you're here now, the child is taking over and telling you what you need to do. And it, it's very upsetting to an older person. Um, I think the main thing is to not lose your cool, not get really upset. But to try to talk about what are you really worried about? Is are you worried that this means that you're never going to get be able to do things on your own? Are you worried that um, I won't be able to do it? Are you are you worried that I might make a mistake because I've messed up when I was a kid? Um, try to get at the basis of the of the um, refusal or the disagreement, whatever it is, in a calm way um, and say and and be open to the person's point of view and, and not argue about it, but just, yeah, you know, I say, I really understand that, but this is a situation we didn't anticipate. Nobody thinks about this and we have to make the best of it. And um, I think we need to um, try to work out something that will satisfy you and will meet your Needs for independence and uh, and that I can manage without making it too hard on on me. Who else can we involve? You've had some good friends over the years. Uh, you have a faith community that you you are part of. Are those people someone we could uh, we could call in for some kind of uh, help? And I think once you again put it back on a temporary episodic this is not, we're not taking over your life. This is, this is to make everything work better for this period while you're recovering or whether you're getting used to whatever it is you're getting used to. There's one other tool, and I don't know that I've mentioned this to you, Leslie. Um, it's called the care map. Mm-hmm. Have I talked about that?
0: No, you haven't talked about this episode. I've heard of it, but I would love for you to tell the, the audience about it because it's another very interesting project.
1: It's a terrific tool. It's um, started um, in a in a very large high tech high-tech project, but now um, it's it's being used in a very easy um, pencil and paper way, and also now in a digital way, where the person could be the person, the the patient and the family caregiver together, or one or the other literally draws a visual representation of this is the home who's in the house there's this one and this one and there's the dog and there's the cat and who comes by every day and there's a neighbor and there's a uh, and there's a there's a a, a Meals on wheels and where where do you, your other children live and they can live really far away or they can really be close so when you're finished you have a you have a Visual representation of who's in your care environment, or, or who could be in your care environment. Why? Where, your support where, network. Your support network, mm-hmm. and it it makes big difference looking at it. And you can make all the lists in the world, but it's seeing this laid out that you've actually drawn or created with your with your phone um, that makes a difference. And there, it can be the focus is is on how do we fill in the gaps and we can, what what is, first of all, what are the gaps and how how can we fill in the gaps? And people get so entranced by the mechanics of doing it that the emotion part gets sidelined. And that's very powerful. You can look online at um, atlasofcaregiving.com. I'll put a link in the show notes for sure. Yeah, that's a great thought. You'll look at. You can look at it, and it will show you a video on how to do it. I've seen it done in workshops. Um, it's good to have somebody uh, help you with it if you if you have a you know a friend or someone, um, particularly with I think with the digital one. Um, but it's it's a way of diffusing the situation, and at the same time creating. Uh, this is this is the situation we're in. Um, you know what, how can we, how can we make it better? That's, I think it's great. Um, So I, I, I always uh, recommend that.
0: Yeah. Yeah. No, that's a, that's a wonderful suggestion. Well, great. Well, Carol, this has been really helpful to hear about this. And I love also your suggestion to sort of, you know, when having not just a disagreement, but, you know, when trying to negotiate something to really start by like trying to learn more about what's under the other person's choices. Yes. Or a request to sort of unpack that, because people often are pushing towards either telling somebody you should or we have to or, you know, trying to convince them.
1: Yeah. Don't and, be so stubborn, Dad. <laughs> uh, yes.
0: Yes. Uh, um, a lot of that. And that often when people, you know, get a chance to express themselves and feel heard. You know, another thing that that we we do in geriatrics, and I know you're familiar with this, too, but, you know, kind of coming to the question of what are their goals and what they're trying to achieve and then framing what we suggest as a way to help them achieve that right
1: and the other the other thing Leslie is that I think that sometimes um, particularly if the relationship has not been of the best over the years and that can happen it helps to have a third person who is accepted by both and is a is a um, a mediator. It could be someone who's familiar with the family. It could be a clergy person. It could be a good friend. It could be a a social worker, um, someone who can make sure that both views are heard and respected and that the goal is to work toward a um, an acceptable resolution um, if you can't do it on your own and I think you know it's it's tough in some situations. Oh, it's, it's, very, it's good to have someone else kind of you know moderate the, the the discussion, particularly you know when they're more than one kid perhaps and and the caregiver, Child, adult, child says, "You know, I'm doing everything. This one's doing nothing. You know, okay. so all these other, other um, relationships get into the problem, which not going to solve that problem. But let's figure out, you know, what what can we what can we reasonably expect of Joe? What can we really expect of, of Sally? Um, you know, they, these are these are the ways that." because they may have their own views about what, you know, what's going on. So it's better to get this out into the open and try to figure it out in a calm way, if possible.
0: Right. Yeah. No, I think people often uh, underestimate the the value of that, of getting a third party to help mediate the discussion. And it's great if it's somebody who knows everybody. but But I think people can get a lot of benefit from someone who, who just has some experience, you know, moderating these kinds of, of challenging conversations. And if there's not, you know, someone available in the hospital, one of the social workers or, 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 or somebody already in the support network, I think if, uh, geriatric care managers can do it, Uh you know, there are sort of, you know, other trained mediators and, um, and it's true, that's often an expense, but I think it can, be a worthwhile investment, assuming that the expense isn't, you know, in the moment too much of a stretch. It can be a worthwhile investment in terms of laying the groundwork for having better conversations in the future and also just airing out some uh, difficult feelings. Yes, that almost every family has its own like little slate
1: of difficult feelings. Oh, oh yes. <laughs> <You> know,
0: <laughs> that, that are packed I, your in there. If family that doesn't have, it,
1: have them, you're, you're not, you haven't been listening. <laughs> right.
0: You know, that tend to emerge at times of crisis or stress. So that's another sort of thing that, that I wish more people would consider as an option. And that can be helpful in helping people actually figure out how to negotiate the limits and boundaries that we were talking about.
1: And I think it 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 also sets up a a, a a a format or a method for future conversations when perhaps another choice has to be made where the illness is progressing or there something else has come along. Um, you know, not every hospitalization ends in full recovery and 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 sometimes chronic disease gets worse. so, it sets up a way of of communicating for the future, which uh, can can be helpful and and easing some of that inevitable tension and stress.
0: Mm-hmm. And I'm going to ask you just one last angle on this because I know this comes up a lot. Um, but you know, sometimes the older, uh, sometimes families are are. Ha- Well, sometimes the older person is still confused, has either become confused in the hospital due to delirium, Mm -hmm. or may have been someone who was already having some memory or thinking problems before, and those often tend to get worse during a hospitalization. And um, so is this something that in your work you've looked at at all, how to help families sort of... um, you don't negotiate and move forward when when the, the older person, you know, may not necessarily have quite the, the capacity right. to clearly make the decision. And I feel like sometimes they still say quite stuck saying, Well, you know, she's well, refusing right. and we have to respect that and that, that it can be a challenge to sort of figure out the limits and boundaries under those circumstances. So do you have any thoughts on how family? Well, I
1: think that, that you're you're absolutely right. I think that um, you know, even if you went into the hospital with uh, you know all 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 systems going, um, by the time you're ready to go, you're you're you've been confused and and the the experience itself is disorienting. I think the idea here is to um, make only decisions that are absolutely essential for the immediate future and to hope that the the person will become more oriented and more um, more able to communicate it's hard. Because you don't know whether this is a temporary situation or whether it's an exacerbation of something that's already been going on, or whether it's the start of some new problem. So I think the the prudent thing is to try to involve the pers- older person in the discussion, but not to um, certainly not to make big uh, life-changing decisions based on uh, that sense that this isn't. This isn't the person isn't really grasping all of the nuances and what this the consequences of what this will mean. And sometimes you just have to, you know, just say, well, this is this is what we'll do. We'll talk about it again when we're home and then postpone, you know, the the uh, final decision. I don't I mean, I'm not a psychologist and I don't know, but that's any other way. But that seems to me to be the only only um viable way of doing it without making it worse yeah no (laughs) Mm -hmm. that you don't want to do you don't want to make
0: it worse no you don't want to make it worse but um but i agree with you i think that's a very sensible approach and and i find that you know sometimes families find it helpful when it's pointed out to them that that their older loved one you know is probably not yet in their right mind and and people we can always ask people about their preferences and it's important to to be aware of what they're voicing. But you know, if they've been confused, they're not really in their right mind, and they're you know refusing some home health care or other services that that you really think are a good way to help them reach their goals and support them and the entire family in the recovery process. That that maybe you'll you'll go ahead and ask for it anyway. Yeah, you know, so and support we'll them and out. tell them it's you know, you know we're trying it out. It's just for a little bit. Using iMessages, you know, I need this support to help you get well. And, uh, so, so I find that sometimes it's, it's helpful to, to remind families that a lot of older people at the time of discharge are not entirely well. Right. And, I, I and may need say, a little extra support. Um,
1: this is one thing with my late mother, um, I didn't have to face. My mother wanted all the help she could get. She loved being in charge of all the help. Oh, good. So it was always, you know, when is the next one coming? When is this one? I don't like this one. Get the other one back. You know, there were difficulties. But the idea of help to her was, you know, Oh and now I'm the lady of the house again and she insisted on to her I think to very almost close to her last few days on having lunch you know with with uh napkins and tablecloth and everything she wanted to that was her that was her goal. And so, you know, that was easier in a way to manage than having her say, I don't want anybody. So mm-hmm. it
0: comes okay. in all all varieties. Right. It certainly does. Okay. Well, Carol, thanks again for coming to talk to us about this. And I just want to remind the audience that, you know, you heard it from Carol Levine herself. Don't feel guilty. <laughs> healthy limits and boundaries ask lots of questions. I will be posting uh, links to some of the resources we talked about in the show notes, especially that um, the next step in care resources, what do I need as a family caregiver? And uh, Carol, any last suggestions or bits of advice for the audience? Uh,
1: Thank you. This has been really interesting. And I think um, I I just want to say, I really hope that family caregivers in these situations do... um, think of themselves as well as their relative because you are important too. And that's a lesson, believe me. It took me a long time to learn. So I want to make sure that everybody understands that. And it's not easy to do in a very stressful situation. So good luck to all of the family caregivers.
0: Okay, good. Well, with all the work you're doing on their behalf, I expect things will continue to slowly but surely get better. Thank you, Carol. Thank you, Leslie. And with that, I'm going to wrap up this episode of Better Health While Aging. If you have any questions about something you heard in this episode, you can post it on the show notes page for the episode. I'll also be posting some links to some of the resources that I mentioned in the episode. To find the show notes, visit betterhealthwhileaging.net and click podcast in the main menu at the top. Last but not least, if you've been enjoying the podcast, don't forget to support us by subscribing on iTunes And if you've already done that, please leave a rating and review. This makes it easier for others to discover our show in iTunes. And I would love for the many people who are interested in health or aging or family caregivers to be able to find it and give it a chance. Thank you so much for listening. I'm Dr. Leslie Kernison, and I'm looking forward to you joining us for future episodes.